Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the pleasure of sitting with someone for whom I have an enormous amount of respect, who I think is somewhere along the political spectrum around where I am, but we're going to find out soon enough. Uh, Michal Kutler-Wunsch is an Israeli politician, a woman who grew up as a young girl in the world of Israeli politics. Your mom was a secretary of Gachal, Benachem Begin's party. You grew up in Menachem Begin's lap almost, and with his wife playing piano lessons for her and all of that. Uh, your father, Erwin Kotler, is uh, one of the really great champions of human rights, a Canadian lawyer, but really one of the world's great champions of human rights and obviously a huge advocate for Israel. So you grew up in a home that is deeply committed to Israel, that is deeply committed to fairness and liberalism in the real sense of the word, because Menachem Begin, people think of as a right winger, which he sort of was, but really wasn't. But he was a liberal in the sense of the, the, the philosophical sense of liberalism, human rights, human dignity, fairness, and so on and so forth. And that's the world that you grew up in. And then um, you made your way into Israeli politics. You've been in the Knesset. Uh, you were in Benny Gantz's party, and before that you were in Moshe Yalon's party, and I think of both Benny Gantz and Bogi Yalon also as centrists. Um, and so we're having this conversation, you know, a few weeks after the Israeli elections, as the new government is coming to be, and there's a lot of histrionics in uh, the Israeli press, there's a lot of histrionics in diaspora communities about the end of Israeli democracy and all of that. Uh, I'm not happy, I'll just put that out there, we'll hear what you think, but I don't know what you think yet. But before we get to that, and what, what, what's actually going to happen, and if we're happy or not happy, what we do about it, I want to first ask you, beyond thanking you for being here, to reflect a little bit on where we are. How did we get to where we are? The numbers of voters on each side didn't change all that much, um, almost minuscule amounts. But leaving that aside, there is a new phenomenon in Israeli political life. It's a Smatrich phenomenon, it's a Ben Gvir phenomenon, and all of that. Um, does it say something about Israeli society? Is it an accident? So thank you in advance. And what do you think? So first of all, thank you for having me here. It's really a pleasure um, to have the opportunity to engage in conversation with you, uh, for whom I have tremendous respect, and also with your audience um, and whoever is listening to us um, and, and engaging in these thoughts. And I think that that's a tremendous source of hope for me to, um, to know that there are people around the world that are not only listening uh, to you and me speaking, but are actually thinking about these issues. I think that that is key. Um, look, uh, the way that I put it very often um, is that we are in the midst of a process. We're far, far from being done um, in what I regard as an incredible democratic process in a 75-year-young 
democracy, um, an ancestral homeland to which an indigenous people, Jews, returned after millennia of exile and persecution and a non-practiced muscle of sovereignty. And democracy. And democracy. Um, uh, founded upon the principles anchored in the Declaration of Independence. So that mouthful, that's the declaration of being the nation state of Jews and indigenous people returned to their ancestral homeland after millennia of exile and persecution, committed to equality. And I believe that the word equality appears seven or nine times um, in the Declaration of Independence. So sometimes we sort of, we use loosely Jewish and democratic. I use the Declaration of Independence as my anchoring sort of solid ground from which to begin the conversation, I'll share anecdotally that on the last day of the 23rd Knesset, of which I was a member, as you mentioned, I actually um, was uh, very prepared to submit my basic law declaration of independence because many may not know, but though its spirit sort of hovers around everything that we do legislatively and otherwise, the declaration of independence was actually never anchored in law or into law. Right, it's been used in certain Supreme Court cases, like the Alice Miller case and the Kol Ha'am case. Now, there are cases where the Supreme Court has quoted it and cited it as sort of constitutional, because we don't have a constitution, but it's not law, right? That's right. It isn't law, and in many ways, um, I believe that the response from which we have to begin engaging in the threefold challenges that we face at 75 years young, not only in terms of Israel's internal resiliency, of which the results of the last election is but one manifestation, and of course having five elections in three and a half years is another, but also in Israel's relations as a nation state, as I mentioned before, with global jury, and also in what troubles me and I've written about and researched academically, in Israel's standing as a member in a family of nations. So the intersection of that threefold challenge actually begins the conversation with the Declaration of Independence. And if you ask me why it is or how it is that we got to where we are and how that relates to being mid-process, it's that whereas the founding mothers and fathers 75 years ago began to build the physical infrastructure, and it's beautiful and it's incredible, and we drive through the country and maybe in some ways think we're done, in many ways we are still members of that founding generation, having a responsibility to build a much more complicated tier, that next tier, call it values, call it, you know, moral, or that next tier of what does it mean and how do we interpret everything that I said in that mouthful that the Declaration of Independence stipulated, anchored as our solid ground. Let me, let me push back for one second. I mean, I love this, but somebody might say, unfairly because you're not finished, but nonetheless, if you read Arthur Hertzberg's book, The Zionist Idea, or you read Gil Troy's version of it, kind of rewriting it, the Zionist ideas. They would say that, you know, 100 years ago, in 1922, that was a robust Zionist conversation. It was all about morals. It was all about values. It was about Jabotinsky's seven mems, about all the things that a country owed. It was about Achad earlier. It was about Achad Ha'am versus Herzl's state versus spiritual reservoir, whatever. So somebody might say to you, we actually started with that. Why did it die? First of all, it is so far from not from dead, right? It, it, it's not only not dead, but it's our, in many ways, misunderstanding as humans that when we've built that physical layer that I, you know, sort of described before, and indeed this country is incredible in terms of how it's grown in those 75 years, 
under duress and under challenge and under continued war, it is actually the idea of Zionism that needs to be emancipated to address that threefold challenge. Emancipated from what? From the place in which um, its appropriation, in the challenges that we face internally, and by the way, I'll get to that, I wasn't avoiding the Smotrich Ben Greer sort of, but internally, in the understanding that there is a war waged on Israel's identity. Is it what it was founded to be? We can call it Jewish and Democratic, that mouthful of the Declaration of Independence. Well, Democratic's not in the Declaration of Independence. Exactly. So so, so I'll say it again. A nation-state of an indigenous people returned after millennia of exile and persecution committed to equality. Okay. Is it that? Or is it a democratic state of all its people? Or is it a Jewish halacha state? Right. A Jewish democratic state of all of its people means a Hebrew-speaking Spain. Exactly right, which was not founded to be. And the, the goal of actually submitting that basic law declaration of independence was to say, look, you can change vision, mission, values. I mean, companies do, individuals do, perhaps even countries do. Marriages do. But you can't do it without telling anybody. You can't do it without putting on the table that we are rethinking our vision or our mission or our values. And so long as, and the importance of anchoring the Declaration of Independence is actually to say, Five elections in a row in three and a half years and their results indicate to me really, really good news. The majority of Israelis are majority moderates. The majority of Israelis actually have very little daylight between their ideologies. How do I know? Because the numbers prove it. Right. What we do have is over time this um, almost um, ignoring or, or, or not acknowledging the war for Israel's identity, and a constant sort of gnawing away at the premise that it was never founded to be, neither a Jewish halacha state, nor a democratic state of all its people. So who's the war between? So here, I think, and if I go back to the idea of emancipating Zionism, I think that Israel's very existence, and that's where the majority of Israeli public, certainly post-Oslo, and you mentioned, you know, having entered politics with Bogi Alon, who actually made his own sort of political movement, uh, you know, somewhere along the, you know, old school political divisions. By the way, I also think that the old school political divides of what we think of as left and right, That's when the bad. country was founded, left and right economically was when the country was founded. Then left and right became, are you for Oslo or are you against Oslo? That was left and right. right. I'd say, and I would, you know, sort of, you know, put it out there and submit that the left and right that we think of today are actually yesterday's delineations in the quicksand and are irrelevant. And we need to be very, very clear about the fact that there is this majority moderate and then there are extremities. And what's happened in a social media reality and so on and so on is, and, and in the Knesset, and it's playing out in politics. And, and in many ways, if you ask me, then Smartreach and Ben Greer are actually the mirror image of TB and Oda or Ophel Kassif. It's not so All of them were on the far left. And, way, and, 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 and it's very important for me to say, not only, it's not, again, it's not about the left-right divide. It's do you accept the shared premise of Israel being that mouthful of the Declaration of Independence, the nation-state of a Jewish people and indigenous people of turned ancestral homeland after millennia of exile and persecution committed to equality. Do you accept that? And right, so when you said Oda and Kasif, what you're talking about, just to give our, our yes. listeners some background, you're talking about people who are arguing, both in the Arab community and in the Jewish community, Precisely. that 
Israel should not be a Jewish state. It should simply be a democracy. Whoever lives here lives here, and they'll have a lot of Jews. Precisely. And, and on the other extreme is people who are saying, in order for the seesaw to balance, I understand you to be saying, if that's what they're going to say, then I'm going to push really hard and make it sort of hyper-Jewish so that the balance somehow becomes this mass majority in the middle that wants something else? Is that where we're headed here in this argument? Maybe I would put it a little bit differently, and that's to say, as actually a person who has dedicated a lot of her writing to identifying and researching double standards in the application of international law, of universal principles of human rights, and so on, you can't apply principles selectively and expect them to hold up. It's impossible, right? You tell a six-year-old, these are the rules of the game, you're going to play by the rules of the game, and I'm not. Right. And the six-year-old will say, that's not fair, and I don't want to play with you. And they'd be right. And they'd be right. Right, okay. Right. So if for a, a long time, and it's a long time, we've sort of ignored the fact that there is a, 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 um, a consistent sort of understanding, and it's not just, and I alluded to it before, by the way, it has nothing to do with being Jews or Arabs or any other religious or ethnic or, 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 or cultural belonging. It actually has to do with the shared principles upon which this country was founded. And I'm not going to repeat the mouthful of the Declaration of Independence. If we've allowed that to continue festering, ignoring it or turning a blind eye to it, or even, I'll say, applying a bit of a racism of low expectations, saying it comes from, oh, what do you expect? What, what, you can't really expect anymore. Look, as Canadian, and I'm both, as you mentioned, I know that those that emigrate to Canada, including my own husband, have to, after several years of residency, um, have to actually, well, in Canada's case, swear their allegiance to the Queen. That might be funny for some. Not anymore. Not anymore. Now it's the King. It's the King. They swear their allegiance to the King. And, of course, have a representative in the Attorney General in Canada um, of the King of England, or, you know, what was our relationship with the Commonwealth. And... Sing of Canada, which made my husband very, very, very nervous because he's got a very poor voice, and accept certain elements of citizenship to a country. And that's in a country that was founded to be a democratic country of all of its people, with multiculturalism as its flagship. And you still have to declare allegiance to it. Exactly. You, have, you know, the word allegiance can sometimes Or be loyalty, or... I'd say belonging. Okay. I'd say a sense of belonging. I'd say, you know, we live in a generation, and we'll get to the hopeful part in a moment, but we live in a generation where people are very, very in tune with their own identity and with their with the right to actually self-define. Right. Their define identity. your own gender, define your own community, define... Your body doesn't even define you anymore. And I'm not saying that in any way derogatorily. I'm just saying that it's really all about how I define myself. And if that's the case, then it's unacceptable that everybody in the world gets to self-define, except for, and here we come back to Zionism, except for Zionists, who happen to be the majority of Jews that self-define as Zionists. In Israel or Bichlal? Around the world. So today we know to say that in North America, 85% of Jews self-define as Zionists. They do? Yeah, absolutely. I know that that is actually, I can you know, send you the data. It's an amazing misunderstanding. What percentage say, of American Jews, let's say 35 and under, self-identify as Zionists? I'm so curious. I don't have the breakdown of the statistics, but I'll say something about it and, and, and also with a bit of our obsession with it. Okay. I'm not so obsessed, but okay. It's legitimate for Jews of all kinds to say, you know what, I don't self-define as a Zionist. 100%. I completely agree with it. And, and even if there are 5% of Jews who self-define as Zionists, and there is an overwhelming majority, so that is not the case... But even if there were, there is no more legitimacy for a Jew to say, you know, I'm just going to shed that Zionist pound of flesh. 
although the word Zionism, that 140-year-old progressive national liberation movement, was predicated, of course, on an integral part of our identity, of our ancestry, of our heritage, of our culture. The word Zion indicates it. And when you see, you know, Jews that prayed and longed for Zion or the return to Zion from Ethiopia, for example, you recognize that here we are once again misunderstanding the appropriation of the term Zionism. Okay, so I want to push you back, though. Yes. I want to push you back. I, I agree with you completely, by the way, and I think this, you know, one of the foundational, if the foundational document of Israel is the Declaration of Independence, and the foundational document of the Jewish people is the Bible. And it's a separate conversation altogether, but we never ask, you know, somebody says to you on a Shabbat afternoon, you know, you should really read this book. And you say to them, oh, what's it about? Right? So we say to people, the Bible's the foundational document of the Jewish people. Somebody should say, what's it about? We never really talk about what Israel's about. We never talk about what the Bible's about. And I just want to put it out there for our listeners. I think one can read the Bible as a love story between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. By the way, not only are you, do I agree 100%, but Ben-Gurion came to Lord Peel with the Bible. Right. Like that mouthful that I said about the Declaration of Independence, it's predicated upon the understanding. So even the use of the word, an indigenous people returned to an ancestral homeland, that's the point that he had made. And it did not matter that he was an Epicurus, that he... You didn't know, believe in anything. Did, but, but ironically, though, these Zionist people didn't believe in anything, but they did believe that the Bible was wow. proof that God had given the land of Israel to the Jewish people. So in many ways, whether God was in the equation or not, it was about the history right. of the Jewish people. Fair enough. Right? Fair. That millennia-old um, understanding that this is a part of your identity, of your ancestry, of your heritage, of your culture, and of your faith, if you so believe. Um, that's the multiplicity of the identity that Jews who self-define as Zionists, or by the way, those who are perceived to be Zionists, because let's say they're visible Jews, so they're assumed to be Zionists right. whether they are or not. Um, and, and so I agree with you 100% that the understanding that there are things we haven't spoken about yet, and these are the things we haven't spoken about, and actually what we should be talking about right now because the festering issues are not getting, or not, right. not, not getting any easier. And that includes all of the issues of what does it mean to be Jewish and democratic or Jewish and... And are you saying basically to go back to our fundamental question that this unanswered set of questions is what leads to the phenomenon of Ben Gvir and Smotrich? No, I'm, I'm in many ways saying that the fact that we have enabled it to fester, and, I mean, there's an elephant in the room that we haven't touched on, of course, and that's the personalization right. of the process that we've um, sort of undergone in five election campaigns. And if you ask me the biggest failure of including the party that I was a member of and actually chose not to continue running with... Um, and, 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 and anecdotally... The and you're talking about Blue and White, the Gantz Party. And, and 100%. And not only is this true for Blue and White, the Gantz Party, but it's true to a much larger degree of, Benny, of, of Boogie Alon, of Telen, the party with which I began and joined Blue and White. And that is the understanding that above all else, what five election campaigns, although they didn't put it on the table and didn't share it with the voters and... I'll argue that the Israeli public is a very politically savvy public and understood this without being told it, is one question and one question only. Yes, Bibi? Or no Bibi. No Bibi. Right. And that is the failing of the parties that I was a member of, that I entered the coalition government with. And I will also argue, that, and, and my last conversation, conversation with Bogi Alon, um, when I decided that I was joining the unity government with Blue and White, I implored with him 
and of course with Yair Lapid to join that unity government. First of all, because that was the result of a democratic election. That is what that majority moderate, that public, was saying to its elected leaders. It was saying, work it out. This is not kindergarten. On major issues, there was no daylight between all of you, and we expect you to now look at mental health and look at real health. I remind us that we were at the sort of the beginning of the peak of COVID, right, at the time when we entered the government. Health, mental health, education, long-term um, planning for all of the issues that COVID didn't invent, but it's certainly exposed, it's certainly magnified. Um, the decision at the time not to enter that unity government um, from my former party leader, Bogi Alon, and Yair Lapid, the leader of Yeshitid, in my view, was actually the beginning of the end of that government, of that uni unity government being able to survive to the extent that I'll share anecdotally. The first thing that I said to my staff when we entered Knesset is, every day in this Knesset is going to be like our first or, and our last, because there was no stability to this government. There was no way that you could create a parity government with a parity government unity organizational structure when you have 14 MKs. By the way, the reason that I entered is because those 14 MKs had to become ministers and we had to pass what's known as the, the Norwegian, Norwegian law, law right. so okay. that the next MKs would enter Knesset to actually do the work, the very important work, which we will talk about too in a moment, the very important work of Knesset, of the legislative branch, which has become so weakened. And it's not just the role of the legislative branch to legislate, but it's the role of the legislative branch to supervise the executive branch that's become so weakened in that um, checks and balances between our three branches of government. Right. In the I want to push you back before we go yes. there, though. People are listening and they're saying, OK, she's a moderate. She's a she. She, they may have, or they may be Googling you as they're listening. You're certainly not on the religious right, to put it very mildly. Um, she doesn't sound that upset about this whole Ben Gvir Smotrich thing. Like this guy has given her all these slow pitches to talk about how this is the beginning of the end of Israeli democracy and these people are despicable and yada, yada, yada. And you're not going there. So if you had to thumbnail it and people are scratching their heads, how is Michal Cutler not, not despondent about these people? Why really, like like really in a, why are you not despondent? Before we get to what it means and all of that, what, what, why, what's, why? I believe in the Israeli public. And they voted to say what this time? They voted to say our personal safety is compromised and you're not looking at it. Compromised in what way? Outside, inside? Inside. Our personal safety in the streets. Our personal safety, we're forgetting what happened here in, in, in Operation... Um, 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 well, in May 2021. In May 2020, thank you. It's right, May 2020. And in the Galil, and, and in, in the, the Negev with and, the Bedouins. And what we called mixed cities, which by definition, I don't even like the fact that we use, because every single city in this country, as you well know, is a mixed city. There is no differentiation in anywhere between the ability to walk around freely and to shop freely and to work freely of Jews and Arabs alike. And so the understanding that personal safety was compromised to an extent, and you asked me before... And nobody else was talking about it. Nobody was talking about it, except for... Ben Vera and Smotrich. Thank you. Okay, now, let me just push it again. So yeah. people, because I really want people to understand this. So we have, first of all, and I think people outside the country just don't really understand it, though we've done some podcasts on this and we're doing more, talking to people from the Negev who kind of describe 
what it is that is really going on in the Negev, which is a loss of sovereignty in certain parts of the Negev, and not small parts of the Negev, and certainly Ben Gvir and Smat, which were the only ones talking about that. And then you're saying, basically, the left and the middle turned it into yes, Bibi, no, Bibi. They turned it into a referendum on Bibi, so we've now had five referendums on Bibi, and didn't offer any other platform, vision, issue that people could get excited about, right. passionate and, about. And just not Bibi is not vision. Correct. That's, that's not, not BB. That's, right, right, that's, that's not, correct. Right, exactly. So you have no vision versus a vision, and a vision that some people might like in and some I'll ways. And I'll say, and I'll say, it's not just a vision. It's an acknowledgement of a pain point. It's an acknowledgement of a pain point. So the moment that you've acknowledged the pain point, then you've already sort of given the hope to whoever it is that that, that feels that pain point that someone sees them. And the other thing is. Just like in every other democratic party, these were democratic elections. And, you know, with with great humility, understanding that the state of Israel is nearly 75 years young, and its democratic processes have enabled it to avoid civil war, which most other democracies, in one way or another, had play out. So when I go back to your the answer to your question, why am I not an alarmed sort of uh, the end of anything, and I'll go back to my answer. I believe in the Israeli public very, very, very deeply. I think that there is an incredible, as I said before, politically savvy, dedicated, committed population that actually, in many ways, around each of our dinner tables, Shabbat tables, if we have Shabbat, or any other kind of table, has this very, very diverse representation of what Israel is today, and, and in many ways represents what that Declaration of Independence sought to do, which was become that home, that return, and on the other hand, that comes with a tremendous responsibility of that public. Great. So now, I want to talk about responsibility of the public and responsibility of the government. Some people think this government is doing such crazy things and splitting ministries. Hasn't been formed. I'm just oh, saying. Right, the government right. that doesn't even right. exist yet. Right. We should just point that out. Right. At least at Which this is conversation. Not to be right. Yes. Everybody's shrine gavalt about a government that doesn't exist. Okay, but it will exist probably in the next week or two. And some people are already predicting. <coughs> excuse me. Its demise because ministries are being split and it can't work. Okay. Let's say the government doesn't fall. Okay. What do you think realistically? I, where we have a law about um, sub verting the power and the independence of the Supreme Court, theoretically at least, to the Knesset. We have somebody like Ben Gvir, who is hardly um, understated, um, getting control of the police in certain kinds of ways. We have Smotrich, who's hardly a pacifist, uh, getting more control over what's going to happen in the West Bank. So that's what's in all the headlines. There was these crazy headline a couple of days ago in Israel that Israel, because of the agreement with the Haredim, is not going to make electricity on Shabbat, which of course is ludicrous, because a country like this cannot not make electricity on Shabbat. They said there's going to be a few more, you know, not mixed beaches. I guess instead of one, there'll be two or three. I'm not in favor of it, but it does. I mean, there'll be plenty of beaches to go to. But what do you really think we're going to see? People are saying, okay, I sort of understand what she's saying about how this happened. It happened because there was like a kind of a vacuum of a conversation about values and about positions. We're feeling 
we're feeling vulnerable, ironically, not from Iran or Syria or Lebanon. We're feeling vulnerable inside our own country. And the only people that spoke about this were Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And while the left and the center are saying, yes, Bibi, no, Bibi, somebody else was actually putting out a vision. And sort of so Michal Kotler is saying, okay, so that's partly why we ended up where we did. So now fast forwarding. Now they're saying, okay, I understand sort of how we got where we are. What do you think? I mean, obviously nobody's a prophet here, but if you had to rub your crystal ball, which does or doesn't work, and the government doesn't fall, and Ben Gvir does have the powers that it looks like he might very well have, and Smartridge does have the powers that it looks like he might very well have, and I want to leave Avi Maoz out of this for the time being. Um, what do you think is really going to change? What's likely to change in Israel? So it's interesting that you asked that. And, you know, as you're asking um, that question, I was reflecting on it being actually, or my response being a part of what I said about, about the lack of acknowledgement of personal safety can actually be, um, can actually be uh, utilized as, a, as, a, as an example for a lot of things that weren't acknowledged. So you spoke about, for example, the statute of limitations for the Supreme Court, right? That we, is part of the, you know, Fear well, it's not so much statute of limitations okay. as much as it is a kind of a judicial review, oh, so to speak, so, right? So, or undoing judicial review. So, so I touched upon it a little bit before, and I actually, my, my, my maiden speech at Knesset actually um, very much sort of began to highlight this. Of course, I didn't have enough time to, to address it in a, in a more meaningful way. But, but I will say, you know, over time, the chipping away in that balance of power between three branches of government of what I said before... The Knesset, the legislative branch's ability and responsibility to supervise the executive branch and not be a fig leaf, that chipping away in many ways was an impetus or a catalyst for the attack on the, le- on the judicial branch, okay, on the Supreme Court and living its power. But not acknowledging that over the last few decades the judicial branch has entered into more and more and more spaces that for whatever reason, it doesn't matter if it was because they chose to roll the hot potatoes or enable the hot potatoes to be rolled to the judicial branch, or they just, you know, didn't know how to address the festering issues in the Knesset, in the legislative branch. So they got addressed in the judicial. So they got addressed in judicial review, which is what happened, right? An individual that that found a vacuum, because nature abhors a vacuum, said, well, you know what? I didn't receive the legislative assistance that I should have from government or from parliament, rather. And I'm going to take my individual case to the Supreme Court. And that's how precedent was made, right? In many ways, making decisions for this country. Not acknowledging that there is an off-balance in the necessary checks and balances between the three branches of government, a natural tension between them, because who doesn't want power and maximum power? And once they have the power, keep the power. Not acknowledging that in many ways became or does a tremendous amount of disservice to enabling the judicial branch to maintain its power. And I think that in many ways what we're going to see now, and maybe this doesn't calm anybody, is in a democratic process of, let's say, four years in a democracy where there is very clear understanding that the public will sort of hold you to account for what you've done over the last four years, especially when the person at the helm, Bibi Netanyahu, elected prime minister, has never been anything but a centrist. Right. On all of the issues that you've mentioned. And a very cautious foreign policy person. Not only a very cautious foreign policy person, 
but a very mindful, um, you know, he, he says of himself that he's a son of historian, a very um, mindful connecting or link between his grandfather and his grandson. So having that kind of responsibility as Tabenkin, actually, right. that was what Tabenkin had said to Ben-Gurion about the partition plan initially, or about, I don't remember what, but, 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 but having a very cognizant responsibility to be the link between our past and our future, you know, call me, I don't know, innocent or hopeful or naive or an optimist, and we'll talk about each of those words if you want to, I don't think of any of this as the end of democracy. I think of it as part of democracy. I think of it as part of the democratic process. I did say that there is a growing need for the majority moderates, and I believe this, to lean in. Because if nature abhors a vacuum, and what we see playing out is the extremities, including in parliament, and on social media, and on the streets, and in many places, by the way, and in the educational processes, and everywhere that there is a vacuum, what will happen, certainly in a social media reality, that instead of us saying, we are not going to emulate the social media reality, what we see is the political, the traditional media, not only emulating, but becoming, um, trying to be better than a social media reality that atomizes, that polarizes, that squeezes out the majority moderates. Well, those majority moderates have an added responsibility to lean in and make sure that they are around decision-making tables, not creating alternate systems to fix the infrastructure, but actually to be part of the system. In the system. Well, in our in next conversation, system. we're going to talk about that central, that that big center majority, and what we have to do to get it vibrant again. And talking about values—that's another conversation which we'll do. But I just want to stick with this for one minute as we begin to wrap this part up. I just want to, first of all, point out to a lot of our listeners who may not be aware: the Israeli Supreme Court is a kind of a strange animal because it's a Supreme Court like the American Supreme Court and it's also a Court of Appeals, High Court of Justice, High Court of of Appeals, whatever. So it plays a variety of different roles which kind of get mushed together which makes it look even like a more activist court than it might be and it is a pretty activist court. The other thing that many people point to is that Judicial review is a very strange thing in a country that doesn't have a constitution. constitution. Because you say this law is unconstitutional, but how can it be unconstitutional if there's no constitution? So people legitimately ask. So when the Supreme Court says, no, we're actually overruling this law on the basis of what? Like your kishkas, your pupik, the Declaration of Independence may be certain times, but not all the times. There's too many things happening that the Declaration doesn't even begin to address. Certainly when it was never anchored into law, so it's just a suggestion. But even if it were anchored into law, it doesn't say enough about enough things. The Declaration of Independence says nothing about the balance of religious religious life and secular life. The Declaration of Independence says very, very little, except for using the word equality, about the rights of Arabs to self-determination and and the flourishing of their own community and in Jewish... There's a lot of things that a constitution would address that the Declaration doesn't. And so when people are scratching their heads, why is Israel doing away with judicial review? It's important for them to understand that some jurists who don't have a dog in this particular race say, well, I don't know what Israel should or shouldn't do. But it is a little peculiar that the Supreme Court can change and can say things are unconstitutional when there's no constitution. I'll add to that. You know, having been a very young lawyer in the early 90s, when what's known as the Constitutional Revolution um, was led by, I was then a clerk in the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Aaron Barak, um, who's a dear friend, who I love and respect. Who's a brilliant jurist. Who's a brilliant jurist. Um, the fact that I just said the Constitutional Revolution was led by a justice is problematic in and of itself. 
It's problematic in and of itself. We spoke about the checks and balances in a democracy. And in many ways, there is still this festering sense that, that there was a hijacking, um, that the parliament didn't even know what it was voting on when it voted on those basic laws that essentially supersede or trump regular laws, no pun intended, regular laws if there is any sort of contradiction between them. I would almost bet that if he could have first passed the Basic Law Declaration of Independence as a, um, a preamble to anything that followed suit, he would have done so. And I'll say one more thing, and maybe now that I'm a little older than I was in the early 90s, anything that you coin or view as a revolution is bound to have a counter-revolution. So I guess I'm much more of an evolutionary gal. So one thing that one might say is, if you just look at Smart Rich and Ben Gvira's a phenomenon starting in 2022, you pull out your hair. If you understand what Aaron Barak was up to in the 1990s, then you just see, you know, sort of a kind of a one a thesis and antithesis or, 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 or antithesis or a pendulum swinging. And this is, again, about that middle, the pendulum swung with Aaron Barak, the pendulum swinging with Ben Gvir and Smartrich. And you're saying, OK, doesn't look so good. The headlines can make you have a little bit of a headache. But when you zoom way out, the judiciary went way left or whether you want to use left or not, it was certainly activist, activist. In, activist right, in a different right, kind exactly. of a way. And what Ben Gurren's mom was saying, no, we want to take power back to the legislature. But what you're really saying, and this is, I think, a really great way to begin to wrap up our, the first part of our conversation, is all of this stuff needs to be understood in context. All of this stuff needs, first of all, analogies between Trump and Bibi are ridiculous. Um, for a whole array of reasons, which we won't go into. And maybe when we have a conversation... Our next conversation we will go into because I think it's important to put our finger on why they're ridiculous. Right. And by the way, five Democratic, uh, five Democratic elections, including this latest election, which maybe people didn't like the government, don't like the government that looks like it's emerging. Not a peep about it not being a fair election. Not a peep about it being a stolen election. Not a peep about the votes having been this or that. In other words, as you've been pointing out throughout our conversation, the democracy worked. You may not like the results, but the democracy is churning, churning right along. But I just want to sort of begin to summarize here what I think is really important. And I had no idea what you were going to say before we sat down. You know, we didn't, we didn't prepare this. We didn't prep this. We didn't, you know. It's fascinating to me for our listeners to hear a woman who is not part of the religious world, a woman who is not part of the right, a woman who is deeply committed to human rights and, and those values, a woman who is deeply committed to democracy, who is herself a lawyer, who clerked at the Supreme Court, who was in the Knesset, not freaking out and saying, I trust the le- I trust the electorate, I trust Israeli citizens, I trust a lot of the leadership, I believe in the importance of and the significance of the legislative branch, I understand the history of Israel's politics, not starting in 2021, 22, but going way back. And this is just part of a much larger process of Israel figuring out who it wants to be. And in certain ways, you didn't say the following, but I'll put words in your mouth and you can tell me, no, that's not what I wanted to say. In certain ways, if this phenomenon, we'll call it the Smotrich Ben Gvir phenomenon, gets Israelis talking once again about the values to which we're deeply committed, then the center and the left will be the beneficiaries of Smotrich and Ben Gvir also, because so far nobody else has gotten them talking about that. Is that fair? So it's not only fair, but I'll say... From a place of understanding that everything that I joined 
you know, Parliament for was in order to ensure that, 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 that from that platform we would have these conversations, the conversations we haven't had about the Declaration of Independence, about, 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 about you know, Amanat Gabizumi done, right? The notion of what it means that, and, and by the way, there religious been, secular religious relations for secular, and, and, and there have been so many important committees and reports submitted over time uh, about conversion and about Sabbath in the public space and so on and so on. All of those issues that have been thrown by the wayside, that is, in many ways, what the Israeli public um, deserves its elected leaders to actually dedicate their time to. And if this is a bump in the road, or not even a bump in the road, it's a part of the process, it's a work in progress, if this is a part of the process, a part of the journey, that the state of Israel, it's not beautiful, it's not gorgeous, but it's democratic, and it's um, um, consistent with, as you said, and I would begin in 1948, and that's why I begin with the Declaration of Independence, but I would also look into the next 75 years and where we're headed. We're at this moment in time, and maybe in our next conversation we can talk about that moment in time intersecting with the place in which global jury finds itself in a myriad of challenges internationally that actually very much intersect with the challenges that we have internally. And Smotrich and Benvir are also a symptom or a response to that, which we'd be foolish to ignore. We'd be foolish to sort of um, um, sweep under the rug and, and hope it goes away. And that would be, again, once again, the, the sort of um, uh, analogy that I drew before about personal security. Um, we can talk about collective security or, you know, the safety of the Jewish people and how we see that play out in what we see in Israel as well. As and what we see in the rest of the world as well. Oh, 100%. Also. Because it's not, Jewish security does not look now like it did 20 years ago. That's right. Maybe we'll talk a little more we'll about that. We'll talk about that next time. Well, this is unbelievably fascinating to me because, um, and I, I don't know what people think, but I, I just hope people can sort of, as they're listening, I hope people listen to this as they're running, some people listen to it as they're walking, some people listen to it as they're driving, um, I hope this is calming, whether they agree with you or me, or I, mean, I didn't really put out my views, but whether they agree with any particular view to understand that there are people here who are jurists like you, who clerked at the Supreme Court, who are incredibly smart, who are not part of the Ben Gvir Smotrich group, but are looking at this and saying, this is a process, this is a democratic process, this is what happens when the center and the left don't talk about ideas. This is what happened when Zionism needs to be kind of, as you say, re either emancipated or, or reclaimed as a conversation about what should the Jewish state be. We're finally having that conversation. And it may not look great on the headlines each morning, but something very powerful, very important, um, something critical to the future of the state of Israel may have just gotten born, even though people are pulling their hair out about it. And I, and I would ask all of those people listening to us to afford Israel the very same luxury that they afford their own countries. So apply the same single standards to understanding that democracy is not a simple task, and all democracies are still continually um, working things out, um, and so is Israel. No more and no less, no different, and not exempt from having to do it. Right. And let's just talk about the Americans for one second, people who were not happy uh, six years ago when the elections went the way that they did. Most of those people did not say... American democracy's over, I'm done with America. They rolled up their sleeves and they laced up their boots okay. and they said, I'm going to make sure that the next election ends differently, which it actually obviously did. Uh, there was very few people I know who said, America's a failure, America's done, America, they said America may be wobbly in certain ways, 
Um, but Israel, they're saying, is done, and America needs work. And what you're saying is that's not fair. If America needs work, then Israel needs work. It's not only not fair, it's those good old double standards that, as I said before, I'm committed to identifying and combating in so many sort of dimensions of, 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 of applying double standards and the understanding that when you apply them, the entire infrastructure collapses. So what's true for Israel is true for every other country. And I'll say, just as we you know, sort of end this piece, um, the one more sort of important um, notion to entertain is the fixing or the leaning in that you mentioned or the rolling up our sleeves. That's all of ours together. This is a nation state of a people. Right. Indigenous people return to an ancestral homeland. The luxury of, of disconnecting is just not ours to be had. By the way, historically, we know that it's not ours to be had. And when we go that route, we know how that ends. Not well. Um, and, 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 then, and then I end with that piece, and you mentioned it before, of why I'm not in complete panic mode. Um, you know, the late Rabbi Sachs differentiated between optimism and hope. Hmm. And he said the following. He said, optimism is the belief that everything will be okay. Yebesidil, we say in Hebrew. Hope is the belief that together we can make it okay. In that sense, optimism is a very passive virtue, whereas hope is a very active one. And it takes not very much courage to to be an optimist, but it takes a great deal of courage to have hope. And I remind us all that our national anthem is Hatikva. It's the hope. And so... Do I think that our generation has our work cut out for us? Absolutely. Do I think that we can do it? Absolutely. Do I think that it comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility? Yes. Do I think that disengaging has any part of what I've just said? No. That's not even an option. Not internally, not with global jury, and by the way, not with the family of nations of which the State of Israel is a member of. No better way to end this conversation. I cannot thank you enough. And we're going to begin our next conversation. Remember to do this by talking about the difference between optimism and hope and asking what do we have to do based on the Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs view of hope for those of us in the center and those on the left uh, to begin to engender that conversation, which we'll turn to the next time we get together. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. Thank you, Daniel. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.